We're thankful tonight again for this gift, scripture, for the gift of salvation, for the fact that you thought enough of your creation to redeem it. And we thank you that the work of the Lord Jesus Christ is sufficient and that it overcomes the forces of darkness and evil. We ask that your Holy Spirit illuminate our hearts to discernment tonight and give us a spirit of wisdom and understanding. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, tonight's going to be a little different than we usually do. Um, it's going to be more of a kind of a laboratory session, and uh, feel free to um, raise your hand and interact, um, because I want to um, use uh, the foil of this article as a teaching device on how to use uh, the doctrinal framework uh, over against the world system. Um, It's a classic instance um, of coming to a self-consciousness about what, where is the conflict here? What's going on? And one of the things that we've emphasized in the past four or five years in this class is that it's not an exegetical class, not the verse-by-verse approach that we're using, um, nor is it a straight doctrinal class. It's a framework so that you can think through the acts and words of God down through time, starting from creation and then going on to the end. And this is the way God sequenced his revelation, the way he taught his teaching the human race. And that sets us up with an organized uh, framework that's not a theologian's framework. It's just that's the way God did it historically. And we've emphasized again and again that the issue in biblical Christianity is thinking God's thoughts after him. Uh, Not feeling God's emotions after him, but thinking God's thoughts after him. Yes, there are emotions. But the center of action of Scripture is to think the way God wanted Adam to think and to think the way um, the Lord Jesus Christ thought. And to do that, we need the Word of God. And the Word of God is the vehicle of His speech to us. Now, there are certain technical terms the Scriptures use, and I want to begin tonight, before we get into the article, of reviewing some tactics uh, and some, some strategies, some approaches. So I'm going to spend a considerable amount of time in the introduction before we get in the article because what I hope you carry away tonight isn't the article. The article's incidental. The process it just is a good vehicle for teaching what we're trying to teach. Um, but what we're trying to do tonight is learn how to use the doctrinal framework of Scripture in actual combat with the world system. Now, the scriptures have a term that they use consistently from the Old Testament into the New. And it's the word uh, that is, um, what it means is basically a a label the Word of God places on unbelieving thought. And that word is vanity. It isn't a very potent word in today's English. It used to be, but it's no longer used very much. But... Vanity is a, is a translation of a Hebrew word, Havel. In the book of Ecclesiastes, it's expounded in excruciating detail. 
in the New Testament. It's mentioned several times. If you look carefully in Romans 1, you look carefully in Ephesians 4, if you have a concordance, you look it up, and you'll see it occurs again and again. And it's, it's a label, and it, 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 it connotes something. What it says is that fallen creatures still carry the design of God and therefore still think. And because we still think, because we still carry the design of God, we think falsely. We don't stop thinking. We, we think in a perverted fashion. And that's called vanity. And it's called vanity with a connotation that it's a lot of hot air and baloney. It carries the image of knowledge. You know, Paul uses they have a form of knowledge, but it isn't really knowledge. Uh, knowledge falsely so-called, he says in 2 Timothy. So, vanity is a judgmental label to expose the, um, the chaos, the unsubstantial structure of the perversion of the truth. Uh, a physical picture is given in James uh, with breath. What is your life but a breath? Now, it doesn't have the negative connotation in the moral sense there, but it's the idea that it doesn't endure. And unbelief doesn't endure because it doesn't have an abiding structure because it doesn't fit the universe the way God made it. And ultimately, it is a profound perversion of things. Well, what we want to do tonight, I want to uh, recall a term that we've used uh, again and again in coping with this. And be, uh, um, it, it occurs throughout the scripture, I mean, it occurs throughout the whole series of uh, lessons that we've done for the last three or four years. Um, but I have a term for this, it's a technique of faith, and uh, it's my term is strategic envelopment. And what I mean by that is that in spiritual combat, one or the other agenda calls the shots. One or the other side plays the tune and the other side dances to the tune. And the game is whose agenda is controlling the game. Doesn't mean necessarily one totally overwhelms the other. It just means that one dominates how questions are asked, how things are phrased. And by and large in our society, secularism, the secularist form of unbelief, totally calls the shots. The evangelical church has been strategically enveloped for at least 30 or 40 or 50 years by unbelief. Not, not in the sense of individuals. It's just that the culture, I shouldn't say the evangelical church, the culture has been strategically enveloped so that no matter what the issue is, and I picked this article deliberately to, to, for you to look at and think about, read, and we'll discuss tonight, because it's a classic case of taking a topic that everyone's interested in and talking about that particular topic, but all the while we're talking about that particular topic, we're enveloping the whole system so that you can't think after you're done 
You can't think about that topic anymore without what? Thinking about it embedded in this system of thinking. So it's a clever tactic. And the idea is no matter what it is, it, right here in this article, it's love between the sexes. It could be business and investing. Uh, it could be sports. It could be any topic of life. It doesn't have to be this. But the question is, whose frame of reference controls the discussion? And I've, I've warned several times, because I myself have been involved in discussions with people, and, and, and you're, own, you're always in a discussion with your own head, in, in dialogue, soliloquy, the book of Psalms, David's always talking to himself, so you're not normally you talk to yourself. Um, the point is that in all these conversations we have, we're either being enveloped or we are enveloping. We are passive or we are active. And the problem is you get tired in this world. You get tired in life. You get fatigued out. And it's precisely when you're tired and when you're fatigued that you go passive. And you allow the system to envelop you. So strategic envelopment is very important. And to show how Paul uses strategic envelopment, I'll take you to the classic evangelistic missionary address that he makes. Let's turn once again to Acts 17. He goes into the heart of the intellect of the Greeks. Here he is in Athens. Here Paul, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, collides with the fountains of the thought that controlled much of the ancient world. And when he goes in to Athens and he starts to speak, he seizes the, he seizes the moment and deploys a strategic envelopment around the Athenians. Watch how he does it. In Acts 17, verse 22, he begins the discussion. Acts 17, 22. And Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. And of course, they must have thought he was freaked out because these were the secularists of their day. And for Paul to come in and say that you are very religious must have struck these people um, you know, say that again. What are you saying? Why are you saying that we're religious? We've given those things up. Those are the myths. Those are the superstitions. We gave those up in Plato's time. Nobody holds to those things. I mean, we, we talk about uh, Zeus and we talk about uh, Mount Olympus, but we use those metaphorically. That's all we mean. Paul says, no, you're not. He says, you're very religious. So, immediately in verse 22, Paul analyzes his audience in biblical terms. See what he's doing? He's not permitting them to self-analyze themselves and then sit down with a mutual discussion of our differences. Rather, Paul has already seized control by putting them inside a biblical frame of reference. 
Then he goes on to say, for while I was passing through and examining, notice, by the way, in the verbs in verse 22 and 23, he's being open-minded and scientific, he's walking through, he's making observations. See? He's not just dictating, he's going around with his eyes open, he's interacting with the data, but he's interpreting the data within a biblical frame of reference. So he says, again, the main verb in verse 22, I observe. I'm not walking in here with my eyes shut. I have my eyes open. I see you people. And here's what I see. Then he says in verse 23, I was passing through. I was examining your objects of worship. And the, the verb tenses here show that he, he, was, he was spent some time doing this. So he has, he's looking at the data. He's not data blind. He's not some religious nut who isn't interacting empirically with things around him. I was passing through and I examined the objects of your worship. I found this altar. Then he makes another assertion at the end of verse 23. Having done that observation, having done that study and in that investigation, he goes on and says, What therefore you worship in ignorance, this I proclaim to you. Now, right there, he's automatically seized the initiative. He is enveloping them with his own frame of reference. He says, you're stupid. He's saying it politically correctly, politely and courteously, but he's saying you're spiritually ignorant, and I'm here to enlighten you. Notice he's not saying, I'm here to argue the case for Christianity. Notice he's not, and he is arguing the case for Christianity, but what I'm saying here is that he's not permitting the philosophers to set up the frame into which he's going to fit Christianity. It goes back to that illustration I've used again and again where somebody wants an interior decorating job in their home and the guy shows up with a bulldozer and he's going to totally redo the house. Well, that's what Paul's doing here. He's totally redoing their philosophical house. And then he says, in verse 24, he drops the real bond. Verse 22 and 23 has been the analysis. Now, the source of the analysis is quite clear, and he's, he flies the flag. Here's the banner. He's not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. And right up, up front end, he produces the issue that agitates every living human being down to the balls of their feet. Deep down into our hearts, he lays it out. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is a Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. He starts with then the creator-creature distinction and then he begins to draw his conclusions. So once again, strategic envelopment using the creator-creature frame of reference. Now, to show you that the scriptures consistently do this, if you look in your margin, if you have a study Bible, you'll notice that in Acts 17.24, that that is a quote from the Old Testament. It's Isaiah 42.5. If we did the same thing, we had time tonight, we could go to Acts 14, and there he does the same thing to a pagan audience, and he begins quoting from Exodus 20.11. What is Exodus 20.11? How does God identify himself on Mount Sinai? I am the God who brought you out of Egypt, and what else did I do? So that you do not work on the seventh day. I created the heavens and everything that is in them in six days. So, God identifies himself. And it's that verse, of all the controversial verses Paul had to trot out of the Old Testament, he trotted that one out and plopped it right in front of his audience. Okay. Let's go to 
a ver two verses I want to show to continue this. I want to emphasize this role of strategic envelopment. The scriptures say this again and again, not just Paul showing it. But go back in the Old Testament, way to the, toward the front to a book, Deuteronomy. And if you look at Deuteronomy chapter 6, this was the norm and the standard given to parents with regard to children's education. And it's a very interesting teaching method for children. A whole teaching methodology can come out of this. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7, it says, You shall teach them, what? All the commandments of God, the Bible. You will teach them diligently to your sons, and then the rest of the verse goes on and shows how they do it. It says, you will do it because you're going to talk about them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way, when you lie down, and when you rise up. Now, that doesn't mean that he's telling Bible stories all the time. The Hebrew indicates you will talk in terms of them when you sit down, when you are out working. The idea being that whatever the subject is, you envelop it in the divine framework as a reference. So if you're discussing labor, you discuss labor, fine. But you discuss labor inside of a biblical frame of reference. You may be out planting plants, farming community. When you teach putting seeds in the ground, cultivating the earth, you're not just talking about seeds in the ground, cultivating the earth. That's, that's just marble knowledge. That's just marbles. You connect it with the design of the seed, with the way that God wanted this fruitfulness. And God has done this, and the earth gives forth weeds, and the earth gives forth weeds and resists us because we sinned, and God has made the earth to revolt against us. That's taking it, not just a lesson in botany, it's a lesson to show that, a matter of fact, the scriptures inform us in everything. So that's Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 7. Now if you come across to New Testament, to the book of Colossians, there's that verse that we've gone through several times, but we remind you again tonight. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8. And this has to do again with the approach of strategic envelopment. Watching who's enveloping who. I always think of a big amoeba slurping something up. That's why I draw this diagram this way. Because in my head, that's the image I have of this. That an amoeba assimilates everything in its way. And the idea here is that that's encapsulated. All right, Colossians chapter 2, 8. Now notice there's an imperative mood verb at the front end of verse 8. Now what does that verse say? It says, don't be taken a captive. What's that mean? You're enveloped. That's strategic envelopment. Don't allow yourself to be strategically enveloped. And how are you strategically involved? How, how do you avoid doing this, he says? Well, he says, when you do it wrong, when you are passive and you allow yourself to be strategically enveloped, it's because of philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of the world, and there he employs a Greek technical term called stoichia. 
And this Greek word was used by the philosophers to refer to earth, fire, water, and air. What were those things? What were those four things I just listed? What functions did they perform in the philosophy of the pagan world? What would they be analogous to in our day? The elementary particles. That was as far as they could push things back to. That was their basic categories. Everything else came out of earth, fire, water, and air. Everything else came out of that. Those are the basic building blocks. So, what Paul says is, that's the way the flesh usually likes to think of the universe. It always likes to go back to elementary things, and the universe is built on these elementary things. But then he says, instead of thinking that way and allowing yourself to be attacked, because once you do this, you set in motion something that crushes you. It's like standing in front of a rolling car. Uh, All of a sudden, the brakes release, and the thing starts rolling over you. That's what happens. You're captive to this thing. So he says, don't do it that way. Instead, according to Christ. So he pits stoichia against Christos. Now, why does he do that? Because stoichia are the elements of the world. Fire, air, water, and uh, soil, or whatever we want to say. Then Christos... What is Christos? We just got through studying last year the virgin birth. And what doctrine do we associate with the virgin birth? The hypostatic union. And what is the hypostatic union? Jesus Christ is undiminished deity and true humanity united in one person without confusion forever. Doctrine of the hypostatic union. Now, Jesus Christ, then, is the creator and the creature. All of that doctrine is combined in one person. That's your starting point, says Paul. The creator-creature. That's where you start. You don't start with atoms. You don't start with fire. You don't start with water. You start with the creator-creature distinction. And everything else is built from that. So do you see the whole thing here? Strategic envelopment is very much related to what? It is related to the starting point. It's related to the basics. It's related to the foundations on which you stand. Okay, so much for... Oh, one other thing while we're on strategic development. Out of this, if we are to permit the uh, control of discussion, out of strategic development come certain implications. And according to Genesis... God's account of creation defines certain great truths. And when we have been studying these truths on Thursday nights, what were the doctrines we associated with creation? Three. All three are critical in analyzing this article tonight. The doctrine of God, the doctrine of man, and the doctrine of nature. And what do we say about man and nature over and against God? God is the creator. This is the creation. So we have the creator-creature distinction. So we automatically have one major truth already. We have the creator-creature distinction. But we also have another one, and that is man. Who is man? Man, in the scriptures, man and woman together, 
is not just nature. Nature's here. What is it that separates man and woman? This is absolutely critical to understanding the fight on this article and the logic behind this article. It starts right here. It doesn't start with romance. It starts with creation. What is the category, categorical difference between man and woman and everything, whether they're apes, whether they're fish, whether they're atoms, in nature? What is unique about man that is not shared by any of the creation? I have created man in my own image. Is there any other image of God in creation other than man? Negative. So man is picked out as being unique in all of creation because he has the image of God. Primates do not have the image of God. You say, well, anatomically they, they seem to be similar. Yes, they seem to be similar. But now we get into a corollary, a strategic envelopment, and what we want to do is, is I'm going to call this, and I'm not coined a word for this, but I'm going to try. What I'm trying to do here, remember back three or four years ago when we dealt with this, I, I said that <clears throat> oftentimes you'll hear people say, um, when the Bible says God is angry, that's an anthropopathism. What do they mean by that? They mean that it's an expression from our anthropogenic experience. And it's an anthropopathism. In other words, we, we experience this passion, emotion, and we attribute it to God. And I, I warned you, that's not the way to go. The Bible doesn't say man, God is in man's, in man's image. What does the Bible say? It says man is in God's image. Which way is the thought flowing? From God to man? From man to God? If I say that man is in God's image, who's primary? God is. And man is but an image. But if I say, well, that's an anthropopathism, or is that a you know, blah, 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 God's an anthropomorphic image, blah, blah. Now I am saying man is primary, and in terms of man, I'm going to define God. So what I'm going to say tonight is, get used to top-down thinking, not bottom-top thinking. You'll see it in the article tonight. Get used to go thinking from top down. And by that I mean, God makes man in his image, and it means that things we see in ourselves correspond to the nature of God himself. And we went to excruciating detail, if you look at the notes back then, that I said this isn't just limited to his, our conscience. Our bodies, functionally, are analogs to God himself. Jesus didn't get incarnated in a lion. Jesus got incarnated in a human body because the body was made for the incarnation. Now, man is different from nature in this. Not only is he form, shape, and so on, but what is the analogy between man and God, or some of the analogies. One of the key ones is God is sovereign, and what corresponds to God's sovereignty in man? Human choice. Human responsibility. So let's put out a sense of responsibility, and tonight I'm going to use the term free will. Not free will in the sense that it's totally and absolutely free in a philosophic way. 
I'm just using the word for the next little tidbit. And this is critical because watch, we'll see this come up in the article. Nature, dogs, cats, and everything else can be viewed in terms of... Anybody in say psychology? What's that? Stimulus, response. Dogs, cats, animals, and everything else. Stimulus, response. Stimulus, response. Now, can you blame the dog for responding to a stimulus? No. But in man, how is this picture not correct? If we are in God's image, if we are in God's image and we have this that corresponds to this because we're in His image, it means this is fractured. And instead we have stimulus. We do have response one, response two, response three, very set of responses. And in the middle, between S and R, we have something called choice or free will. What we have said here totally argues against this, this arc. We're in total collision. Right from the, right from the title, we're wrong. We're, we're going at each other in totally different. Man cannot be viewed as an analog with animal behavior. To view man and analyze man's behavior in terms of animal's behavior is to buy into something that denies this. Man is not part of nature. He is made in God's image. He shares responsibility. He shares free will. And dogs and cats don't have it. Man has it. And that's why what is true at the end of history. Why can God hold us responsible and judge us? Because we have free will. Okay? That is the difference. That marks us and sets us apart from nature. Or said another way, just to make the point tonight, before we go any further. Man is not a product of his biochemical brain states. Your hormones and your brains do affect you. Absolutely. But they don't totally affect you. If they totally affected you, you couldn't be held responsible. You would be a biochemical machine. And nobody holds biochemical machines responsible because biochemical machines just respond. Okay? So, we have, we, this, this is fundamental, folks. This is absolutely fundamental to the Christian biblical view of man. Sadly, we have people in the medical profession even who appear to be, claim to be Christians and don't still seem to understand this. Is that um, everything is just a biochemical fight. And whoever has the best chemistry, the viruses or, or medical science wins. All right, let's move to number two. So we've talked about envelopment, strategic envelopment. Now we're going to learn one other tactic before heading into the article. And I'm going to call this the tactical use of language. The tactical use of language to infiltrate. Hearts. Language is a very, very powerful tool. And there's some very sobering things in Scripture that speak to the issue of language and words. 
And if you'll turn to Proverbs chapter 1, I want to show you an, uh, uh, some of the vocabulary the Scripture insists on using. Proverbs chapter 1, background for this term, for language, and how it's, we have to watch it. Proverbs chapter 1, notice the parallel. Proverbs, a lot of it is written as synonymous parallelism. And verse 23 is synonymous parallelism. Look at it. Synonymous parallelism is a great Bible tool because it teaches you how the Holy Spirit expresses himself through language. And in verse 23 it says, Behold, I will pour out my... This is the wisdom speaking, the teacher. This is a teacher personified. The teacher is going to teach the student. And the teacher says to the student, Turn at my reproof. Behold, I will pour out my spirit on you. Parallelism, I will make my words known to you. Ah, so now look at what we've got here in Scripture. Spirit and Word. Words are not marks on paper. Words are not sounds coming out in Greek or English or Spanish. Words can be marks on paper. They can be noises coming out of our mouths. They can be gestures like that. There's all kinds of things that can be words. So I'm using words in a larger context here. Now, words have meaning. And one of the all-time great mysteries is how does a human being attach meaning to words? Mortimer Adler, one of the Associated Encyclopedia Britannica, once said that we all perform our greatest intellectual act by age six. Never in the rest of our lives will we ever perform such a fantastic intellectual task as what we have accomplished by the time we've aged six. What does he mean? We've learned language without knowing a previous language. And nobody understands how we do that. Philosophers have debated this for ages. How does a child attach meaning to a language and communicate? You see, you, you and I can't communicate if we don't share common meanings. Where do we get the common meaning from? If your ideas are just rounding around your head, and my ideas are running around my head, how come our ideas fit together? Why is that? Nobody's come up with an explanation apart from this. Behind words, there lurks the spiritual reality of meaning. And it's used again and again in Scripture. And let me show you some verses. While we're over here in the Old Testament, let's turn to 1 Kings 22. And if we don't get through the whole article tonight, and I realize you're wondering when I'm going to get to it, um, we'll, we'll carry on next week. So we won't, there's no pressure. But these are so important. As I went through this article, I realized that we need to look back at Scripture so we get grasp of some of these tools. 1 Kings 22, a time in Israel's history when the northern kingdom, which was the apostate kingdom, solicited the help of the southern kingdom. And they wanted to know whether they should go out and fight the enemy. And in verse 6, the king of Israel gathered prophets together. How many? Let's count them. 
Because it's the number here plays a role in what I'm going to show you. Get the number in mind. This is, is this one counselor? No. This is 400 counselors. About the size of Congress. All right? And so Jehoshaphat, the king of the south, wants to, a prophet of the Lord because he doesn't trust these clowns in the north. So they look around and finally there comes a prophet. And the prophet says, because it's, it's Micaiah, verse 13, and summon Micaiah. And Micaiah says in verse 14, he says, whatever the Lord says to me, I will say to you. And when he came to the king, the king said, Oh, Micaiah, shall we go to Ramoth Gilead to battle? Shall we refrain? And he answered, And go up and succeed, and the Lord will give you the hand of the king. This is, he's being sarcastic here, the prophet is to the king. And the king said to him, How many times must I adjure you to speak to me nothing but the truth in the name of the Lord? Now, doesn't that sound sincere? And he, the prophet goes on and says, You're going to get creamed. And the king of Israel then turns to Jehoshaphat and says, Didn't I tell you, this guy doesn't prophesy anything good concerning me except evil. He just got through telling the guy, didn't he? Tell me what the Lord said. So the prophet tells him what the Lord said. Now he blames the prophet for telling him what the Lord said. That's what I love about the Old Testament. It's so real. Micaiah then describes the vision that he saw. And he says, I saw the Lord. And these are one of the strange meetings that I believe God has down through history. I mean, just think of what you could do if you had CNN cover these meetings. Hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the host of heaven standing by him on his right and on his left. And the Lord said, Who will entice Ahab to go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said this while, another said that. I had a discussion in the angelic council. And then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, Notice, how many spirits? One. A. Single article, single noun. A spirit came forward and stood before the Lord and said, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, how? Now look at verse 22. I will go out and be a deceiving spirit in the mouth of how many of his prophets? Oh, now isn't this an interesting phenomenon? We have one singular spirit affecting the words of 400 people. One spirit. And so the Lord says, go ahead, do it. Now this is a phenomena in scripture. It's a spooky kind of thing. But what I'm saying is the tactical use of language to infiltrate hearts. Language is what separates man from the rest of nature, isn't it? You have a carry on conversation with your dog recently. Yeah, you can talk to them and so on. But I mean, a real understanding conversation by concepts of right and wrong. See? You may, you may want to, because you get so furious at times. But it doesn't do any good because the dog hasn't got a conscience. You have language, the dog doesn't. Separates. Now, what does God have? He has language too. You see? Language is the linkage. It's the characteristic of the human race that links it with God and the spiritual being, the spiritual matter. Now let's come over in the New Testament and see this strange phenomena again occurs. Let's turn to 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, 4. 
Now, I'm not trying to get everybody all spooked out here. But I'm simply saying that we don't know what, a lot about what we're talking about in language. And lurking within language itself are spirits. Language becomes a vehicle and a tool for spiritual infiltration. In 2 Corinthians chapter 11, notice in verse 4 how Paul speaks of false gospels. He says, if one comes and preaches another Jesus whom we have not preached, or you receive a different spirit which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted. Why does he link all three of those sentences together if they're not intimately related? Jesus, spirit, and different gospel. What he appears to be saying is that language carries spiritual power with it. And when we absorb a false teaching, we have absorbed the spirit of the false teaching. That's how dangerous language is. This is not a little innocent game that's being played here. And when we come up against the spirit of this world, we inevitably must become self-conscious, focused, and alert on the language of conflict how meanings are carried, and so on. Let me give you some simple, uh, everyday illustrations of tactical use of language, first in a non-serious way that everybody uses this in, in conversation to show you how this works. Let's suppose that you're in a conversation with somebody, and they say the following sentence. Well, even, even she could learn something that simple. Now, it appears that what we're talking about is whatever this thing that's simple, isn't it? Well, even she could learn something that simple. That's the overt sentence. But what's being carried along in that sentence? Something else. It's a judgment on this person. So that sentence has been loaded, and we all know how to be snotty about it. It comes natural with a sin nature. But there's a good example of a sentence that appears to be talking about an object but it's carrying something along with it. And when you're the object of that kind of conversation, you feel very uncomfortable. feel like uh, something's wrong, somebody's got an attitude about me. But sometimes you can't put your hand on it. Watch the language. All right, let's try a second one. If you really wanted to lose weight, you wouldn't eat so much. Now let's think about this. It looks like it's just a dietary health discussion. Is it? What's the implication if you really wanted to lose weight? What's the implication of that? But you don't. So we put a little snotty remark into the sentence, see? We appear to be discussing over a health issue, but embedded in this is a slam that this person doesn't care about themselves. And there's something else in that sentence. If you really wanted to lose weight, you wouldn't eat so much. In other words, it's within your capacity to solve that problem. Then you're not. See? It, it's, it, it, watch this. Because it appears on the surface that the language is only talking about health issues. But underneath, it's talking about a lot more than that. It's talking about a person's attitude. It's talking about a person's capabilities. It's talking about all kinds of things embedded in that sentence. Okay, third sentence. Here's, here's, this is even more 
has more things in it. Watch this one. Well, everyone understands why you act the way you do. Let's look at that one. Take it apart. Everyone understands why you act the way you do. What's the baggage in that sentence? The fact that everyone understands. You know, this is so obvious. I mean, you've got a real problem here. And it's obvious to everybody around you. Also, you could say that you, it, it's, it's saying it's, you've got an obvious problem. So you've got a problem and it's obvious. Another thing is, isn't there a, a hint in this way the sentence is constructed that it's um, whoever this is being addressed to should be very grateful that everybody understands them? Everybody's being so gracious to them, say. So all I'm saying is that I've given you three illustrations of sentences that appear at first glance to be talking about something, but actually carrying all kinds of stuff with them. Now let's turn to the article. And let's, when you turn to an article like this, let's, uh, the men who write these are uh, women too. They're professionals. They know how to write. And they pick their language very, very carefully. Now, they uh, get it turned here. Okay, uh, it's page 42 on the, on the U.S. News World Report of, the, of uh, February 7th. Um, what do you notice about the title and the subtitle? Now, here we go. Tactical use of language. Think about the two things we just got through talking about. Strategic envelopment, tactical use of language to infiltrate ideas. It may be a many-splendored thing, but romance relies on Stone Age rules to get started. Romance relies on Stone Age rules. Let's look at that one. By the way, this is slow going. And I want you to observe something. What's wrong with a lot of hymnology in the evangelical church today where we just sing stuff and never even think about the lyrics, what we're thinking? If language imports things with it, what are we doing if we don't think about what we're singing? And this is why, if you go back in church history, the classic hymns were very carefully thought out. And they were intended not just to be sung quickly. If you take, for example, some of Charles Wesley's hymns, you could have a devotional out of the hymn. You could sit down with a piece of paper and take that hymn apart, stanza by stanza, and get an awful lot of beneficial stuff out of it. And then when you sing it, it means much more because the singing comes out of the understanding of the lyric. You see, music is like, like all art forms, is to enhance something. It's not the main vehicle. The art is an enhancement of something. Music is an enhancement of the hymn. 
That's why in Scripture, when hymns are spoken, there's very rarely do we have hymns mentioned in Scripture, but Deuteronomy 32, you've got a hymn also in, um, in Rook of Revelation. We don't have the music, but we have the lyrics. Why is that? Because it's the lyrics which is the center of the, of the issue here. And in this article, we, we're saying, okay, let's pull apart that subtitle. Stone Age rules. What does that carry with it, that Stone Age rules? What was that? Okay, outdated, Stone Age. Uh, the word Stone Age, let's look at that one for a moment. Not only is it outdated, he could have used old-fashioned rules, but he didn't. Yeah, right? Exactly. So, by using the Stone Age, when he could have just said, by old rules, by putting this in here, now all of a sudden, here comes, the tactic, here comes strategic envelopment. Now we set the whole discussion right in the subtitle. What's the discussion is now what? We, we start saying the discussion is about love and romance. But immediately when you see this in the subtitle, what's happened? Boom. Strategic envelopment. Now on, everything's going to be discussed inside evolutionary frame of reference. There it goes. I haven't even got through the subtitle. And we've already surrounded the whole topic with a framework. And from now on, in the rest of the article, it's all going to be an evolutionary viewpoint of love and romance. All right. What else is true? Notice something else about it. Let's look at the word rules. If it's Stone Age, if it's past evolutionary history, and after all, you know, Darwin made it as a theory, what does the word rules do for, for the authors here as far as the certainty of the evolutionary position? He doesn't say, according to Stone Age theory, does he? He uses the word Stone Age rules. Ah, rules. In other words, this is fixed truth. Everybody's agreed on this. It's only just a few religious people on the right that have a problem with this because, I mean, most normal people would understand that this is truth. So, in a devastatingly clever subtitle, we've already had evolution put in our face and declared to be absolute truth. Now, having done that, let's go on and discuss love and romance. And, of course, no sooner do we get through the article that all of a sudden we uh, are face-to-face with this. Now, I just love articles like this because I always say that if you want to learn unbelief, go to artists. Go to people that really know how to express it. Learn it well. I mean, you've got to go to the gutter. Go to a good one and walk through it, and then you get immunized against the trivial stuff. So we go through this, and we have a guy in, in, a, in a singles bar watching behavior of guys and gals. A nice place to learn. And he comes up, and by the way, he's an accomplished anthropologist and head of a center, by the way, in university. You know, there's no perversion too perverted for an academic not to follow. And so here we have a man, probably on a federal grant, uh, spending time in singles bars for 20 years. 
And he comes to the delightful conclusion that people don't trust one another at first. I just love this one. The issue is, now look at this, this is hot stuff. This is the center of the discussion of love and romance. The issue is, how do two bodies get close enough together to procreate? This is the center of the issue. And by golly, the rest of the article is all about that, isn't it? From hormones to, to anatomy to everything else. How do we get two bodies together to procreate? That's the big stumbling block. That's what those hormones have to do. Have to get those two bodies together. Well, now, you see, what did we go back? Remember, I spent an awful lot of time saying there's a difference in the Christian worldview between men and nature. Are we denying the fact that God uses sex? No. After all, we do know a little bit about Jesus' birth. So, what's the problem here? The problem here is right here. You cannot use animal behavior of the stimulus response to act as a model for human behavior where you have choice. So, we are in fundamental disagreement here. The, the, the analogy that this Givens guy is providing us is built wholly on the assumption that sexuality in human beings is identical to sexuality in the animal kingdom. Why does he say that? Because look at the subtitle. Where do we come from? What is the continuity between animals and man? There's continuity. It's not that the primates reproduce after their kind and men produce after their kind, but it's that given enough time, primates reproduce and they produce man. There's a continuity of being. So this guy, given his frame of reference, is this a wrong statement of the issue? I mean, if I were a student in class, I would just love to write a paper on this one. I have a fun with this one. Because I could come to the, to the naturalist teacher, the secular teacher, and say, as a man, standing up, as a white male in the class, I could say, well, it's my, I, when we promote uh, sexual behavior on this campus, we're just, getting, we're just carrying out evolution, getting two bodies together to procreate. And I try to say it just so that it would just hackle, but they couldn't attack me because it's the re result. I just learned it from you, Professor. You know, I mean, wasn't that in lesson three of the class? So I'm just drawing the conclusions. Surely you want me to think for myself. Surely you want me to draw the proper conclusions from the content of your lessons. And that's the lesson I'm, I'm drawing from what you said. And so the article goes on. Look at, look at this delightful sentence on page 42 on the lower right. Um, flirting, for example, has rules that cross cultures and countries based on gestures that seem anchored deep within our evolutionary history. Excuse me? <laughs> what? How do you... What gestures? I, I, you know, do, do monkeys do this kind of stuff? What gestures have we learned from our long evolutionary history? But you see... This is where that infiltration is occurring in the sentence because it looks like when you first read the sentence, the discussion is flirting. But notice as you plow into the sentence, your mind is reading those words, it's assimilating the words, and by the time you reach the period at the end of that sentence, what has happened to flirting? It's been enveloped inside an evolutionary worldview. This, they beat this thing to death in this article. 
Now notice the next one. This even gets more intriguing. And those gestures scientists are now discovering follow codes of attraction and beauty that may be millions of years old. These codes in turn, now this is the sentence that gets me. Think of a code now. And think of, think of you know, you go down BWI Parkway, and what do you go down by? You go down by Greenbelt, you go down by the NSA. I mean, these are the top cryptographers, uh, break, code breakers in the world. You know, most of them PhD mathematicians. Why is that? Because codes are very complicated. Codes are extremely complicated. They require the best and brightest minds in our culture. And then we have this sentence, codes have evolved. You know, besides George, has anybody here written computer codes? I'm sure you have, Mike. You read computer codes? Do you ever have computer codes evolve on you? You ever see one? My experience with computer codes is they devolve. Especially when I write them. So, here we have some reporter, whoever this fisherman is, and he's talking about codes. He uses the wrong metaphor. He's using a, a metaphor of complexity, of mathematical structure, and then he's trying to argue that they just somehow, geez, they just evolved. And they point us like Cupid's fleet arrows toward the healthiest mate. And why is that? Because attraction to a healthy person gives our best chance to have babies and pass our genes to the next generation. Now, wouldn't that make a wonderful wedding conversation? <laughs> to have this couple in front and say, will you please pass your genes on to the next generation? Then it says on page 44, on the lower left, though true love may be deep, complex, and sculptured, by individual psychology. The first tug of desire has a face and a shape driven by that need to reproduce. After all, the name of the game of life in the long run is to move your genes into succeeding generations. <laughs> I mean, this is serious stuff here. Now, by the time you've, you've waded through this far into this article, what's happened to the love and the romance? <laughs> I don't see anything romantic about this. <laughs> okay. And I want to, we only have a few minutes left and we're not going to finish the article, but I want to, pointing out uh, that this tactical use of language is getting very serious in our culture. I don't know whether during the summer you heard about the Kansas, the state of Kansas, about what happened out in Kansas this summer, where one Christian woman, one Christian woman, suddenly realized that they were having meetings around the state discussing science standards. And she decided as a whole, I think she taught her kids at school at home, and she decided, well, I think I better go check this out. So she goes into the meeting, and it's this total, this stuff. Everything's evolution. Evolution is the grand frame of reference. Now, wait a minute. Who's paying for this? I think uh, every April 15th, I, I think I pay for some of this stuff. So I think I have a right to say something. And she did. She got on the telephone. 
and she started calling around people across the state of Kansas. And uh, long story short, the Kansas Board of Education this summer said that in the state of Kansas, we will not accept evolution as to be taught in the schools as absolute truth. Now, they weren't saying don't teach evolution, were they? They were just saying, we're not going to teach this to... Well, you should see the firestorm of explosive vitriolic from the press, the media, the governor, the college and universities over the simple thing. All they said was, we just don't want it taught as the final truth. Hey, you got a problem with that? Everybody says, you know, let's be humble about it. We don't know everything, but we knew one thing. The Bible isn't true. Well, you can always tell when a bomb hits the target by the screams from the enemy camp. And this lady and her, her fellow cohorts must have dropped the bomb on exactly the target that the other side feared. And more recently, I, through the Dobson's family, um, Focus on the Family, now it turns out there's a teacher, biology teacher in the state of Minnesota, who is being hauled up before the Grand Inquisition because in the state of Minnesota now, in order to teach biology, you have to pass a litmus test that do you or do you not accept evolution as fact. And if you don't accept it as fact, you're not emotionally prepared to be a biology teacher in the public school system of the state of Minnesota. Well, thankfully, this is a Christian who's not going to be a doormat for someone else and is taking the court case to a federal court and filing a discrimination suit. And more power to him. But this is the kind of stuff that goes on, people. This, this stuff is all over the place. And it's amazing that we can't talk about something like love and romance without carting in underneath 852 pounds of garbage trying to make us all view this particular subject matter in the light of an evolutionary frame of reference whose major agenda, by the way, is what? If we believe in the evolutionary view of the universe, what does it effectively do for the sinner? Stimulus response. Removes responsibility. Well, I don't have to be responsible to a creator. Let's, let's conclude tonight by going back to the turn to the front of that article and just imagine if in the subtitle where it says it may be a many splendid thing but romance relies on Stone Age rules to get started. Just imagine if in place of Stone Age rules uh, the following was substituted. It may be a many splendid thing but romance relies on the creator's design to get started. Now what have we done to the article? With just a few words, just a few words in one sentence, look at what we've done. We've totally altered the worldview. So when we read in Paul in Colossians 2.8, beware, lest you be taken captive by philosophy and vain deceit of men, traditions of men, according to the elements of this world and not according to Christ, that we adhere to these things. Now, next week, we're going to finish this article. We're going to resume our study on the death of Christ. But we want to work our way through it. And I hope we can get some good discussion on some of the other things as you go toward the end of the article. Pay attention to what happens. Father, we thank you for our time together tonight. We thank you that you have not left us rudderless, but you have allowed the spirit 
the Holy Spirit to inspire Scripture and to preserve it and to give us pastor teachers that faithfully teach it to our hearts. We thank you for this now in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we have a few minutes and uh, we can, uh, if you want to discuss anything, I'd rather not get down to the end of the article because I want to go over that next week. But, um, any, any, yes. Oh yeah. They uh, they're uh, talking about genetics. I mean, it's it's really quite uh, interesting to listen to the breakdown of genetics. But the whole premise is about engineering babies and what uh, what if we were to get into that and you as a parent pick what you wanted as far as the traits of your baby. And once that baby's gene pool is, is is changed, then that would be passed on. And how would that have changed the evolution of man? Mm-hmm. And then, then, then you got the guys who think that the intelligence of computers, that we would be able to download ourselves so that we could never die. <laughs> I sort of like that. <laughs> <laughs> you all want to remember is that back when we were talking about not just creation, but we were talking about the civilization, you know, after the flood, and we're talking about myths and so on. Remember I said that every culture, including highly technical modern cultures, have what we call culture myths. And every civilization has always had culture myths. And culture myths are ways that the populace have of framing the picture that they're talking about. And the evolutionary stuff that you get is, is the culture myth of our time. And it's the way that, quote, educated people discuss things. It's the intellectual context of all discussions. Yes?
Yeah, yeah. But it was. But in effect, it was. Yeah. I think that might work on adults, and I, I hypothesize that that could actually um, be successful on an adult. I think we should try that on that doctor. Well, that doctor, right? Well, because what what they finally said was a failure. His excuse was because the um, the earliest surgery and the decision to raise this child as a girl was done at eight months old. And that there was a twin brother who mirrored male behavior. That's why Yeah, yeah. Well, but see, what the Bible speaks of when it talks this way of vanity. Remember I said at the beginning of the lesson tonight that one of the hallmarks of vanity is that finally there's no substance left there. And where the scriptural frame of reference hasn't controlled and isn't controlling science and technology, you better watch out. And it's fortunate in one sense because where the scriptural norms and standards don't hold technology accountable, what you often have is lying and deceitful research. One of the things I observe in science today is that in my own field, meteorology, is that a lot of research is not research. What it is is chasing grants. And in order to chase grants, you've got to create a problem that you can solve. So there's like ozone holes, there's um, uh, climate change. Uh, I mean, if you don't give us $50,000 grant to study this, I mean, the Florida Peninsula is going to be underwater in, 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 for the next century. Um, and so there's this playing on fear and manipulation of stuff that goes on. Graduate students who are being used by PhDs to do research, and then they don't get any credit for it. The PhD gets the credit for it. Um, all kinds of insidious stuff goes on. And, and believe me, the, the academic campus is just as immoral as, as any other place. And people attack and say, well, the military is immoral. It's not as immoral, my observation, as what I've seen on the college campus. So um, the point I'm saying is that without standards, everything falls. And one of the horrifying things, I remember uh, Carol and I went in 1991 to my 30th reunion at MIT, and back in, at that point, that was when the Genome Project was just starting. And there was some fascinating lectures by one of the men who was fundamental in all the Genome Project, mapping the human gene. And he basically said in a 30-minute talk, he, he raised the issue of what's going to happen with life insurance, what's going to happen with health insurance, how do we... You know, can you get health insurance premiums? If you, they read your genes, you've got a propensity for this disease, that disease. I mean, he, he surfaced all the problems and then, of course, said, well, we don't have a solution. Well, that's because they don't have any ethical framework to solve the problem with. And what's scary, uh, even more so, is that in Genesis, what does it say about reproduction? It says reproduction within kinds. So what do we have today? In the interest of the, fa of the food industry, to keep food from decaying in transit. Now we're taking genes of salmon and sticking it in corn to, because the salmon can survive in cold and they want this, the vegetables to, to be surviving. So 30% of the corn already in America has been genetically manipulated. Um, we have uh, other kinds of things going on. They, they want to now, uh, Monsanto, a big uh, chemical company getting into seed production. Uh, they just got their wrists slapped 
thankfully for the Internet. The Internet has a lot of uses because it mobilizes people quickly to an issue. Uh, Monsanto was suddenly surprised after investing millions of dollars in Terminator seeds. And what is a Terminator seed? A seed that will never, never uh, reproduce itself. So farmers each year have to come to Monsanto to buy the seed, and they can't keep the seeds from their crop because their seed is no good from the crop. It's called a Terminator seed. And they were going to biologically engineer the seeds to self-destruct at the end of one year. Then everybody can be dependent all over the world on Monsanto chemicals, see? Big profits. And uh, then we have the people who are talking about embedding the chemicals of pesticides in the vegetables. Yeah. So now, now we're, when we eat food, I mean, it used to be if you didn't eat meat, at least, you didn't get the, the, the stuff. Now you can't even eat your corn because you're eating pesticides inside the corn. And then they wanted to breed some vegetables to be resistant to herbicides so they could put the vegetables out and spray the whole place with herbicide and keep the weeds down. Well, now they discovered, gee, you know what's happening? The vegetables are crossbreeding with the weeds, so now the weeds are becoming resistant to the herbicide. Duh. So when you hear, and, and by the way, in all of this, it's interesting. You know who's alert to this? The Europeans. They don't buy American food. But when you read about it, you watch your newspapers. The story that we're getting in our press is those nasty Europeans. They're just boycotting American farm produce just for the heck of it. And they're just trying to cause a trade war with the United States. That's, that's the spin that comes off in our newspapers. That's not true. Mary Miller was over in Germany. They won't touch American stuff because they can't trust it. You know, what are the Americans putting in this package now? That's why they're not buying American produce. And who has got all the cancer, by the way? So the, this is what's going on. And it's all this unethical insensitive. I mean, if you were a creationist in really and heartfully and thoughtfully, would you sit there and think about, first of all, in, you'd be fascinated with the DNA design. I mean, I think it's great. There's a lot of positive stuff coming on in DNA research. To talk about a generation that has the revelation of God stuck right in its face, it's ours. I mean, no generation has ever had access to getting down into the very blueprints of God himself in this kind of thing. But, but then, you're warned by the Scripture. What does the Scripture tell us? That we're to subdue the earth with wisdom. And where do we get the wisdom from? From the Scriptures. And what did God say? I have created every seed, bearing seed, to reproduce after itself. He didn't say to put in salmon and corn for crying out loud. There's a different kind. You don't mix the kinds. But creation is just never even thought about, say, just this mad rush because, because, first of all, if all seeds and all animal life has come by sheer chance, well, why can't we add and improve it? See, that kind of motivation is easy to rationalize if you think in the first place that it's all come by chance. It's just a game that's got thrown together. No respect for it. You know, why not play? Well, maybe I can make a better version. You know, the, 19, the 2001 model. Why not? But if you're a creationist, you look at things differently. And it affects the way you operate professionally. In every area. And we as Christians, we've got to think through these frame of references. It's getting critical in our time. We're the only people left with any kind of a framework. We are. We are the only people left with any kind of an anchor in our society. 
and we're increasingly going to be looked upon as the weirdos. But on the other hand, we have things going for us. And that's one of those things next week when I go in the article, I want to show you how you can turn an article like that right around in a positive way and show the gospel effects on it. it yes, Debbie. their worldview forces them into that position because once you accept evolutionary position, what we're spoken about about relationships, why why does that play a role? Because we're made in God's image. And you said it. The, real, the anchor of all relationships is vertical. It's between God and us. And the fact, and we're going to go into this, think about in Ephesians 5, when Paul talks about marriage, you know, we've, every marriage service we trot out Ephesians 5 and always say it's a type of what? Christ and the church. Now, I want to culminate in, in the end of this article. I want to see if, see if you can catch where, where we can go with this. I'll, I'll throw this out and just think about it. How do we strategically envelop their position when they say the main object of life is to be fruitful, to multiply. Basically, I don't use those words. But they, they, they talk about survival. Pass your genes on and, and survive of the species. Well, there's a fragment of that that's partially true for another reason. Now, can we think through from Genesis 1, looking carefully at the Genesis 1 text, looking at Genesis 2, and looking at Ephesians 5, and pull those three passages together and use it to say, no, here's what you're looking at. Here's what you're looking at in the romance side. And here's the real explanation of what's going on. And here's why it's designed the way it's designed. And this also will explain this, 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 this that you're trying to explain, but better than you, because you can only, like Debbie pointed out, they can only explain the biological. They can't explain the higher functions. It's not essential. Yeah. It, it's, it's the, uh, but it's the, the thing we have to see, folks, is that the conclusions they're coming to are not alien to their own position. It's a map. That's why I want you to read the article. It carries out this thing that the Kansas City, the Kansas State, now everybody's upset about not teaching it as a, as a fact. But when you do teach it as a fact, how do you avoid the conclusions of this article? 
Think about it. If you're going to accept evolutionary worldview, then don't you have to go along with this article? I think you do. And if you read the last page, think about what happens in the last page of the article. Okay. Uh, enough, and next week we'll meet.